Well, we're here in uh, Genesis 3, and I got a, an email from, or a text from my friend Jason Allegood at uh, Fellowship Bible this, this last week, and he knew kind of my plan, and he texted me and said, hey, Daniel, uh, you, you do know there are 50 chapters in Genesis, right? In other words, I don't think your plan is going very well to get through this quickly, but we're again, we're in a, a passage that uh, we could spend three weeks on. We're not going to. We're going to try to get through it this morning, and then we're going to kind of, hopefully our pace will pick up as we go through Genesis, and then as we get into Exodus and Leviticus and so forth, we'll, we'll pick up even a little bit more. But there's just so many foundational truths here in the first few chapters that I think are important for us to, to look at so we can be able to, do, to give a big overview later as, as we go through. So we're here in Genesis chapter 3. We're looking at verses 18, um, sorry, Genesis 3, verse 8 through uh, the end of the chapter through verse 24. And so if you would stand with me, if you're able, as we read these verses together. Adam and Eve have just eaten of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They were not supposed to do that. They've done that. Verse 7 tells us their eyes were open. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together. And then verse 8 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Uh, You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word 
this morning. Uh, let's, let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we uh, come to this passage as, as fallen creatures in a, in a fallen world, and we pray that you'd help us to understand that this morning, and to help us to understand the extent of your grace and the work of your Son, Jesus, on our behalf. We thank you for the redemption that's found through, through faith in him. And we pray that wherever we are this morning, whatever aspect of our, our fallen nature we're dealing with, or living in a fallen world we're, we're, we're dealing with, that you would speak your grace to us. That we would trust in your son Jesus alone for our salvation, for our continued walk with you. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I'm sure most of you are familiar with uh, Disneyland and, and Disney World, uh, the Disney-type theme parks. The theme of them is, is something like uh, where, where dreams come true. Uh, Disney World is the most magical place on earth, I'm told, and we've been there before as a family, and indeed it's a very magical, fun place. And At Disneyland and at Disney World, what they, they kind of do is they, they have this idea that that. Uh, it's a magical place, and then all the themes and the attractions and the rides and the shows and the, the people who work there all kind of help try to create that, that illusion that this is a, a fun, magical place. And as you go there, you, you do, you feel like you're in this, this, this magical world where you're a, a prince or a princess or, or whatever it is, and it's just, it's just a fun place. Well, there's a new theme park that uh, I don't recommend you attend. And it's kind of a theme park slash art project, art exhibit. And it's called, it's in the UK, it's called Dismal Land. Dismal Land. And uh, everything that Disney World is, this place is not, okay? This, this place is trying to get you to understand that, uh, that you live in the real world. And the real world is not that great of a place. That's kind of its theme. And so it's a theme park. All its attractions and rides kind of assault you with that reality. It's kind of a, a world full of corporate greed and pollution. And so the, the people there don't tell you have a nice day. They say stop smiling. And there's not a beautiful princess castle. There's this dilapidated castle. And there's a playground for the kids, but it's like rusty and things like that. And there's this kind of like pond with a bunch of scum on it and stuff and there's a like a big police van used to control riots there's a sniper nest on it and grenade launchers and a slide for the kids uh so it's it's the dismal land is not that happy of a place but perhaps it at least recognizes that we do live in a fallen world right which theme park do you think accurately represents reality? As you are confronted with the reality that we live in a fallen world, which is the right response, a Disneyland or a dismal land? Last week we were in Genesis 3 at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3. And there in the beginning of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin, and their sin doesn't just have consequences for themselves, does it? Romans 8 tells us that the entire created universe is affected by Adam and Eve's sin, that, that all creation is now groaning as a result of the fall. As they, as they sin, sin enters into the entire universe, and the entire created world is affected by Adam and Eve's sin. You and I are affected by their sin this morning. 
Because of Adam's sin, I stand guilty before God. I inherit his guilt. I'm considered guilty because my representative before God sinned. Not only am I legally guilty before God, I've inherited my, my great, 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 etc. father's sin nature. Ephesians 2 tells me that I'm before Christ dead in my trespasses and sin. And so you and I live in a fallen world. And, and what's, the, what's the right response? Are we to live in a kind of a Disneyland or a dismal land? You know, the Disneyland approach to, to sin and the corrupted world that we live in is to say, well, I don't really believe that that exists. Or maybe it's to take a, a naive optimism to the fact that we live in a fallen world. And we hear stories of, of refugees and atrocities committed, and we kind of, kind of narrow our eyes so we don't think about those things. We take this blissful ignorance to the reality that the world is a fallen place, and And we see people hurting, and we don't really empathize with that. We don't think about it deeply, and so we kind of live in this this naive optimism. And and surely that's not what God has called us to, right? But the other response isn't right either. I mean, the dismal land response is to say, okay, I'm I'm confronted with the reality that the world is a fallen place, and and I I see all the atrocities that take place on a moment-by-moment basis in the world, and I'm filled with despair, I hear stories about Syrian refugees, and I, I see that the picture of that little, maybe you saw that picture of the little three-year-old boy who, who died as his parents were, were trying to, to cross into, into Europe, and his body washed up on the Turkish shore. I see that, and how do I respond? I'm, I'm filled with despair, perhaps. Or I don't even have to think globally. I can just think about the relationships that exist in my own life and my relationship with my kids. And, and it's never how it's supposed to be. It's, it's always off. Or my relationship with my spouse is, is never perfect. Or my relationship with my friends isn't, ex- you know, there's just things that are off in that relationship. Or my relationship with work. And there can be a sense of despair, right? Or a sense of just discouragement as we think about living in a fallen world. Or I even think, I can go even smaller, can't I? I can think about my own heart and how in my own heart, things aren't right. Things are off. If I pursue a life of morality, even in my heart sometimes, there's this sense of, oh boy, there's, there's this over here that I wish I could enjoy. But I know that if I pursue a life of of sin, of whatever type, I'm not going to enjoy the, the blessings, the peace of righteousness. Or if I pursue wealth, that's not going to bring happiness. If I live a life of poverty, that's not going to bring happiness. Things are, are off in my own heart. So how does God call us to live? I'm not supposed to live in some fantasy world, but I'm not supposed to live in the life of despair either. What does Scripture call me to do? Well, as we look at Genesis 3, what I believe Moses is telling the people that he's writing to is that he's acknowledging that we live in a fallen world and he's calling them to have hope in God's provision for them. And from where we stand in the story of God's redemption, I believe that's God's message to us as well. We see the beginning of sin and God wants us to be realistic to understand the extent of sin's destruction. 
But he wants us to understand the extent of sin's destruction, not to fill us with despair, but to cause us to turn to the only one who can provide redemption, right? The purpose of grasping the extensiveness of sin's destruction is so that we can turn to faith in Christ and his redemption, right? That's what we're going to see as we go through this passage. We're going to see the extent of sin's destruction, how it affects so many of our most fundamental relationships. But we're grasping that not so that we live in some sort of dismal land, but so that we respond rightly by trusting in God and by trusting the provision of Jesus Christ through his redemption. We're not going to be able to cover every aspect of this passage. We're not going to be able to, to talk about the totality of all the, the significance of what we're looking at. But I want us to begin to just understand here is how extensive sin's consequences were for Adam and Eve and then for us as well. So here's the first thing that I want us to see as we talk about sin and its effect and its destruction in our lives. And, and each time we're going to look at sin's destruction, and then we're also going to look at the gospel's restoration. So here's the first thing. Sin destroyed my relationship with my God. And we see that in verses 8 through 13. Adam and Eve have just sinned, and, and what, what happens there in verse 8? It says they, they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the, in the cool of the, the day. And the picture here is that Adam and Eve had this great relationship with God. There was apparently this, this time in which they experienced his presence in a special way. And now, because sin has entered into the picture, that relationship has been broken. They hide themselves from his presence. And instead of welcoming the presence of God as they have done in the past, now there is hiding. Lord God calls and he says to the man, where are you? And this, this question is a question of grace. God obviously knows where Adam and Eve are. In the next chapter, he's going to ask a similar question to Cain, where is your brother? And he already knows the answer to that. God asks questions in a gracious way. God's questions are designed to allow people to, to, to fess up and to experience his grace. But Adam responds in kind of a pathetic way here in verse 10, doesn't he? It's, it's very sad. He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid man and woman have had this desire to be like God, thinking that this knowledge was going to make them more like God. And now as they've gained this knowledge, they're, they're too afraid to even look upon God and to have him see them. It says, I was afraid because I was naked. I, I hid myself. And God again asks these gracious questions. Well, who told you that you were naked? And have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man is still illustrating this, this broken relationship here because, again, instead of being honest with God and, and just laying himself before God and saying, look, this is who I am, this is what I've done. He says, well, the woman whom you gave to me, there's lack of trust in God. This woman who was this, this great gift last chapter, now she's this instrument of curse. She says, well, he says, well, you gave this woman to me and, and she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Again, there's this hiding going on, right? The relationship between God 
And this special creation is, is broken here. It's broken. How has it been broken? There's a couple things that have happened here, right? I mean, first of all, a dependence upon God has been re- replaced with self-reliance and pride. And so before, where the man and woman were in perfect relationship with God and seeing God as a source of good things, now there's a sense that, that, that God is, is, is not one to be relied upon. They, they make fig, uh, clothes out of fig leaves for themselves, and there's this sense of, of, of pride in their own ability. Their trust in God has been replaced with mistrust. Before, where they, they looked to him for all good things and trusted his character, beginning with what the serpent said to Eve, now they, they lack the trust in God. They, they, believe, they mistrust him. They believe that perhaps he's this instrument that's trying to, of, of uh, oppression in their life instead of this, oppress, this instrument of grace. And then, and, and I think this is perhaps what I want us to think about, an openness before God is is replaced with these clandestine activities, this desire to to hide themselves from God. It's kind of silly when you think about it, what Adam has done, right? He should know the extent of of God's ability. He he knows that God is the one who's created the universe, and and yet he he kind of attempts this, this hiding act. It's silly, right? Hide-and-go-seek with my kids has gotten progressively more difficult. Whenever they're young, very young, uh, hiding, hiding consisted of doing this. It was a successful hide right there. Then as, as they got a little older, it was, it was a little more difficult, but, but still pretty easy. I mean, I would start to count, and my, my kid would, would go to that same spot behind the couch each time. And, you know, 10 out of 10 times I'd walk by back there, Daddy found you, and they oh, I can't believe you found me. I'm pretty smart, right? But then they started to realize, as, as we play hide-and-go-seek, they, they realized that you needed to, to be able to uh, conceal yourself from Daddy's senses. And so I, I can walk into a room, and I can look at the room and realize there's a limited number of places that a, a child could be hiding here. And and so I, I could, with my eyes, I could, could see potential places that they were. And then I could, could hear them. So I could walk into a room. I could be really still. And be, before they got good at hide-and-go-seek, they, they'd start to, to giggle. You know, the giggling would start pretty quickly. And I, Daddy found you. I mean, if you're my kids, I can even use my sense of smell. Okay. Yeah, son, you're right there. Got you, you know, right? But now, as, as the kids get better at hide-and-seek, they, they know I have to conceal myself from Daddy's senses. I, I need to be able to, to prevent him from s- seeing where I could be. And, and now my kids can hide in places that visually I, I have no idea how they fit in these, con- these containers. And then, um, always with air holes. And then, you know, I can, they're really quiet, and, and they bathe well, so I can't smell them. So hide-and-go-seek has got a lot more difficult. But when we think about God, God's senses are, are completely perfect, right? God is aware of you, not just your visual location, not just any of the, the tiniest sounds that you make. But, but think about this. God can hear what your heart is saying with, with perfect clarity. As a psalmist 
says in Psalm 139, verse 7, Where shall I go from your spirit, or, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. In other words, there's no place that we can escape the presence of God, and there's, there's no place that we can hide ourselves even emotionally or, or intellectually or, or what we're thinking in our hearts. Everything is laid bare before God. Sin destroys my relationship with God, and how does it do that? does it in multiple ways, but one of the ways that it does that is it, it tries to convince us to believe that I need to hide who I am from God, that instead of trusting in him and relying upon him and laying myself open before him saying, God, this is who I am, I need to trust you to change me, sin tells us I, I need to hide myself, I need to conceal myself. And, and brothers and sisters, that, that desire to continue to conceal our sin that desire to continue to conceal who we truly are before God and, and those who love us prevents us from restoring, having that relationship with God restored. For example, there's, there's this passage in Revelation that's always been very intriguing to me, very sad. It's whenever the, the seals of God are, are open and the destruction begins to take place on the earth. And in Revelation six twelve. And begin to see the opening of the sixth seal. Verse 13 tells us the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free, you know what they did? They recognized that this is an expression of God's wrath. And, and from the greatest to the least, how do they respond to this? What does it tell us? It says they hid themselves. Hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Here's this, this moment in, in which people recognize the reality. This is, this is God. God's wrath is being expressed here. And, and I, what am I going to do? How am I going to respond to God? What's, what's the, the natural response? It's, it's to hide, to conceal ourselves. He can't see me. I don't want him to see me. How does the gospel fix this. Here in, in Genesis 3, I think what Moses is saying, we'll talk more about this as we go through the chapter, what Moses is saying, look, you need to, to trust in God and his provision. Yes, sin has had this great destruction. We need to trust in God. How do, from our point in the story of God's redemption, how do we know that God fixed this? Well, through the cross, right? Jesus is the, the seed promised from the woman. He's, he's the one who has removed sin's curse on us. How does he restore it? Well, 
he tells us that the gospel or the gospel message communicates that we need to do the exact opposite of hiding ourselves, right? The gospel tells us, look, you need to repent and believe. In other words, as you repent, you say, okay, this is the, the path that I've been taking, and this is not a path that's going to lead to joy or life. And instead of hiding myself and saying, don't see me, God, don't see me, God, don't see me, God, we say, okay, God, I'm right here. Right? God, this is where I am. This is the sin in which I find myself. I'm not hiding it from you. I'm not pretending like it doesn't exist. I'm, I'm confessing it to you. And God is, is please see me right here. I'm, I'm laying myself open before you. And now help me to turn from this. And as we do that, what do we do? We can't just do it on our own. We can't say, help me to turn from this and, and do better. As we, as we recognize our sin, we, we lay ourselves before God. We say, God, I'm right here. Help me, help me. And we place our faith and our trust in his son, Jesus. That's the gospel message. It's like a person out in the middle of an ocean, drowning and trying to get the attention of the rescue helicopter. Here I am, here I am, here I am, here I am. That's the gospel message. The gospel restores us as we, as we come before God and say, God, I'm, I haven't, it's not just that I've made a mistake. It's not just that I got confused. It's not that there was some sort of misunderstanding between us. God, I've, I've sinned against you. Forgive me. Save me. The gospel restores the relationship that sin destroyed. Here's another thing. As you think about the fallen world and not living in some fantasy world, but not living in a dismal land either, just understand the reality of what sin has done. Sin also destroyed my relationship with my family. Sin also destroyed my relationship with my family. There's a lot here. We're not going to be able to touch on all of this, but look at verse 14. God begins to deal with those who've been involved in the sin he tells the serpent, because you've done this, you're cursed. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, I don't think he's talking about the serpent literally having to eat dust. and I don't think that the serpent necessarily had four legs and all of a sudden has to crawl on its belly. What I think he's talking about here is a state of humiliation. It's like what we see in Micah seven seventeen, where it says, The nation shall lick the dust like a serpent, and like the crawling things of the earth, they shall come trembling out of their strongholds. And in other words, there's this humiliation that's going to, to take place. And the serpent is going to face humiliation. And then in verse 15, I, I think we have here perhaps what some have called the first gospel message, and, and I would agree with that. He, he tells, the, the as he's cursing the serpent, he communicates some truth that both the man and the woman hear and cling to. And we see other characters and uh, individuals throughout the rest of Genesis kind of hearkening back to what God tells the man and the woman here through his words, the serpent. He says there's going to be enmity between you and the woman and then between your offspring and her offspring. In other words, the, the curse of sin that's about to take place, which is death, is not the end of the story. It's not like man and woman die, then that's it, no more humanity. There are going to be continued descendants of the woman. And then he points to one in particular. It says, uh, there's going to be one who will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
And what I believe that this is referring to, of course, is, is Jesus Christ. There's going to be this one who, who deals with the effects of the fall and the curse that he's about to talk, describe in more detail to the man and the woman. He's saying, look, there's, there's someone who's going to deal with this in the future. And it's not a lot of information. It's just a little bit. It's just enough to help the man and the woman trust in God. And as we see the descendants that follow after and the the attention to the genealogical genealogical record and the hope that one of these descendants is going to reverse the curse, we see the hope in Christ. Now look at what he says to the woman. First of all, he tells her that the arrival of this Savior, there's going to be these these children born, and, and one of them is going to be this Savior. It's not going to be without pain. He tells her, verse 16, he says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. And, and then he says this, and it relates, of course, to this marriage relationship that's the core of the family. He says, but your desire shall be for your husband. You might read that and think, oh, that's nice. She's going to really like her husband a lot. Well, that's not what this word desire means. He says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And that word rule over you is not a pleasant word either. In fact, if you go to the next chapter, Genesis 4, and you come to verse 7, you see that desire and rule together again. God tells Cain that sin's desire is for you. In other words, sin wants to to overpower you, to overtake you, to dominate you, and you have to rule over, you have to crush it. So what is he saying to the woman? He's saying, look, uh, these roles that have existed that I've given for for this enjoyment in the relationship, they've, they've now become tainted by sin. And one of the ways that sin destroys this new family relationship is now in your role, there's not going to be this, this harmonious relationship. You're going to have a desire to, to rule over your husband, to, to uh, usurp him, to control him, to dominate him, and, and he's going to have this desire to crush you. Instead of being this helpmate that comes alongside him and says, okay, how does God want us to live in this life together? You're going to come alongside him and want to, to dominate, to say, hey, let me direct you this way, and, and I want to change you, and I want to, to, to kind of just uh, control the relationship. But he's going to be suffering the same way. He's going to be suffering from this delusion that his job is to, to crush your spirit, to, to crush you and say, no, this is what we're going to do. Sin, sin destroys the family. And it begins as it attacks this one flesh relationship. How does sin destroy the marriage relationship? There's a lot here, but just kind of three thoughts. Sin destroys the marriage relationship as it as it causes us or let me put it this way, sin destroys, first of all, our ability to to understand our roles destroys our ability to rightly understand our roles. Sin, my sin nature, has affected my ability to to intellectually comprehend what God desires me to do. And sometimes whenever I'm doing premarital counseling or I'm talking about marriage, I'll I'll try to give like an analogy. You know, the husband is supposed to be like a coach or the husband is supposed to be like this or that. And all those analogies ultimately fail, right? Because in our sinful state, we don't have the ability to look upon 
the perfect example of anything. And so it's very hard for us to intellectually comprehend what it looks like for a husband to be truly sacrificial in his headship, in his leadership. And it's hard for us to, to rightly understand even intellectually what it looks like for a wife to submit herself in a way that is honoring to God, yet at the same time preserves her, her dignity and, and to, to preserves her ability to, to be standing before God in the right way. And so our ability to rightly understand our roles has been incredibly tainted by, by the fall. Sin destroyed our ability to even intellectually understand our roles. Sin also destroys our ability to, to function in our roles. Even if we were able to understand our roles, sin affects our ability to, to do them, to practice them. If I've been called to enter into this relationship and practice selfless love, sin has destroyed my ability to practice selflessness. What does Adam do when God confronts him? Who's the first person he throws under the bus? It's a woman. So sin destroys my ability to understand the role that God has called me to. It it destroys my ability to practice my role. And then this is key too. Sin destroys my ability to be fulfilled in my role, doesn't it? Sin destroys my ability to find fulfillment in that role. You come alongside a guy and you say, hey, look, this is the life God's called you to. Let me tell you about it. It's it's a life where you will constantly be laying down your own preferences for the benefit of another person. You're going to enter in this relationship and and everything you do is going to be designed to to care for this other person and, and your life is going to become nothing compared to hers. Your career, uh, your your career path or your whatever it is, your hobby, your your passions, all those things are going to, to be subservient to this this relationship that God has called you to serve this woman. As a person honestly reflects on that, I mean, how, how in the world am I going to find fulfillment in that? Or, or you tell a, a young woman, look, you're, God has called you to this, this role of, of caring for this other person and your your primary ministry is going to be taking place in in caring for a family. Not meaning there aren't other ministries, but your primary ministry is going to be found in in fulfillment found in that. I don't get that. In fact, it's so countercultural. I was was at a a lunch recently where I was sitting next to a young lady and uh, someone across the table asked her, what are your plans after high school? And she says, well, I want to go to, to college. And I want to study this and that. She goes, but my, my ultimate desire, my ultimate desire is to be a, a wife and a mom. And it was, that was so striking to me because you don't hear many people say that or think that way. You don't hear a young man say, my ultimate desire is to, to be a godly husband and to, to care for a family. Sins affected our ability to understand our roles, to practice our roles, to find fulfillment in them. And if, if you're currently married, you can analyze, you know, how the fall is, is impacting your marriage. And, and if, if you're, you're single, it's important for you to realize, look, I, I can't live in some sort of Disneyland and, and believe that, that there's a, some Prince Charming that's going to come sweep me on my feet. We're going to live happily ever after. That's not where you need to be living. And at the same time, you don't need to be saying, well, marriage is kind of like Dismal Land either, you know. What we say is, look, I understand 
as I, as I look at my marriage and I see how I respond to things, I understand the sin, sin has really affected my impact to do this right. So what's our hope? Our hope is the gospel. Gospel's restoration. I don't have time to go into any, everything I wanted to say here, but just understand this. How does the gospel restore marriage? The gospel restores marriage in, in, in ver- some very important ways. Let me just give you two. One, it restores a model for marriage for us. If I am a husband, I now have a perfect model of what sacrificial love looks like in the person of Jesus Christ. One who laid down his life for the church. If, if I'm a wife, I have the, a model of someone who is living in submission to someone else. God the Son, Jesus Christ, lives in eternal submission to God the Father. And it's not some sort of drudgery. It's not like, oh man, God the Father, I'm having to live in submission to him. There's this perfect harmony in the relationship as each fulfills their role. And, and so I can look at Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, and see a perfect model of absolute submission and joy in it and strength. And then as I look to the gospel, not only do I see a model of of what the roles in a marriage look like, I, I also now have the ability to rightly practice my role. The gospel gives me a new heart, a heart that's changed, that they can have a desire to do the things that God has called me to do. The gospel restores. The third thing about sin's destruction, I think it's important for us to think about that's revealed here in Genesis 3 is that, that sin destroyed my relationship with my work. Sin destroyed my relationship with my work. And we're not going to go into detail there, but, but what we see is God speaks to Adam. We see that, that work has now become difficult in a new way. The ground is cursed. There's thorns, there's, there's thistles, there's opposition to, to doing work. And then what's even worse, there's futility in our labor. Life is now nasty, brutish, and short. Death is the only release, it says here, is you're, you're going to work, you're going to work, you're going to work, you're going to work, and then you're going to die. Go back to the ground. For out of you are taken, your dust into dust you shall return. Sin destroys our ability to engage in meaningful work. It destroys our ability to find satisfaction in our work. The things that we do seem, seem useless and futile. So how does the gospel restore? How does the gospel restore? Was we, we come to faith in Jesus Christ as we restore that relationship with God and say, God, this is who I am. We repent and we place our faith in Jesus. How does, how does the gospel, how does, how does God provide meaning in our work and restore it? Colossians 3 tells us this. As we now have a relationship with God restored, our relationship with work can be restored as well. He tells workers, he says, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. This is Colossians 3, beginning in verse 22. And don't do this by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. We now, through the gospel, have our relationship with God restored through faith in Jesus Christ. And now we can engage in work, ultimately, not 
to please fallen man, not to achieve success in a world that's fallen and receive fallen trinkets of prestige or money or promotions, whatever. But we can do work heartily, working hard with the satisfaction that the things that we're doing are, are ultimately for God. And we find meaning and significance in our work again. As the original audience is reading this, I think they would have seen a lot of hope as they came to the end of Genesis 3. Maybe a, a lot of hope is, is strong. They would have seen hope. Because the other, the following chapters are going to continue to talk about the consequences of sin. It's going to be bleak, but there's hope in the midst of this judgment and bleakness. The man seems to, to trust what God has said. Verse 20 says he calls his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. He's, he's demonstrating faith that what God has said is going to be true. There's going to be a continued human line. And then God provides for Adam and Eve. And we have here the first animal sacrifice. And I, I believe this is also pointing the necessity of blood to cover sin. Verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and he clothed them. So Adam and Eve had tried to, to make themselves these garments out of fig leaves. They weren't all that effective. Now God himself provides them with, with clothing through the shedding of blood. And then God demonstrates his provision and his care for the couple and not allowing them to continue into eternity in their sin, and not having their relationship with should restored, and not having their relationship fail to be, I'm saying too many double negatives there, and not allowing them to continue out of relationship with him, okay? They could have continued living forever and not been in relationship with God forever, and an eternal experience, but instead he provides for them. He removes them from being able to eat of the tree of life. He drives them out and prevents them from entering in a sinful condition. Interesting, in Revelation, the tree of life returns and we can eat of it, but in a different state. Grasping the extent of, of sin's destruction is important. We can't live life pretending like things are okay between us and God. We can't live in some fantasy world thinking that the family isn't affected by the fall. We can't live in some fantasy world thinking that, that our relationship with our spouse is fine and we don't need to, to worry about it. We can't live in a fantasy world thinking that it's okay to pursue the things of this world and, and work and, and everything's okay. But, but neither should we live in despair. Grasping the incredible extent of sins, consequences, and destruction, and devastation causes us not to despair, but to trust in Christ and his redemption. A redemption that far exceeds the devastation. The amazing thing is that as far-reaching as the consequences of sin are, the grace of Christ reaches even further. His redemption is complete and absolute. That's the hope that we have from where we are in the redemption story. That's the hope we'll continue to talk about as we talk about this foundation of the gospel here in the book of Genesis. Let me invite the, the men to come forward to pass out the elements for the Lord's Supper. And as they do so, here would be my encouragement to you. By the way, uh, you do not need to be a, a member of, of Bethany Community Church to partake in the Lord's Supper together. We encourage you to be a member of, of the local church. 
or be pursuing that, uh, but you don't have to be a member of our church for taking the Lord's Supper. Uh, but as, as we partake in the Lord's Supper together, I'd encourage you to, to think through what is it that God would have me think about as I think about this reality that, that his redemption is extensive. Where does God want his redemption to be manifested in my life? What aspects of my life need to, to reflect the reality that I've received forgiveness through his son, Jesus, that I've been redeemed and called to a new life? Let me pray, and then I'll ask the men to pass out the elements. And Father, we thank you for your redemption in your son, Jesus, and we do think about the extensiveness of, of sin and its consequences, its devastation. And we pray that we would not be ignorant of that, but we pray that we would not despair either. We pray that as we think about your son, Jesus, our hearts would be encouraged as we see the incredible salvation we have through faith in his name. We pray this in his name. Amen.